do that for you. I'm just telling you. The time between slipping on a banana peel and actually hitting the ground is one banana second. And finally, the power of the world's greatest evangelist, number one evangelist, exactly one Billy Graham. Okay. Uh, I know I talked about uh, Acts 1, 1 through 3 last week for a few minutes in the context of kind of the behind the scenes uh, context of the book of Acts, what it is, it's inspired New Testament scripture, who wrote it, very good historical evidence. In fact, the uh, the man known as Luke, the phys- beloved physician, wrote it. Uh, what's it about? When was it written? We talked about all that stuff and we read through the prologue. What's a prologue? It's an organized introduction. So it kind of lets you know where the author's head is as he's beginning to write something. We looked at it last week, but I want to look at it one more time because there's more to say about it. And also we're going to go beyond that to verses 4 and 5. So we'll see that in verses 1 through 3, Luke has thought through this and has organized himself and uh, he kind of pulled a Carla Buchanan or maybe a Jenny Heath and really got his stuff organized and, and wrote this book and he wants you to know it's something that we need to be reading. But on the other side, paradoxically, there are some things you can't plan for. There are some situations you can't do anything about. You might be between a job, right? Or uh, between some other family crisis or some financial crisis. There's nothing you can do about it. And sometimes you just wait prayerfully and wait for the God to show you what the next big thing's going to be, whenever that's going to be, five months, five years down the road. So we're going to look at kind of two sides of the Christian life coin in those five verses this morning. But first, before we do that, uh, my bad, I forgot to put this in the bulletin again this week, but how do you remember the 28 chapters, the essential content of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts? Because I want you to be able to do that as we go through the book. And I've said, you don't have to remember 28 things. You have, to, you have to remember one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Just a memory device we're going to use to help us anticipate and remember the key content of the chapters as we go through them. So let's learn the first five of these, okay? Ready for this play, Henry? Watch this. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Let's look at Jesus as uh kind of a memory device. J stands for Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. That's the main thing that's talked about in chapter 1. And we're leading up to that today. So J stands for Jesus ascends to heaven. Look at chapter 2, establishment of the New Testament church. That's music to my ears. Eden is singing late, but that's okay. Uh, there's the old story told about the uh, visitors uh, and the babies going nuts, and eventually the mom gets up and struggles. He's going to walk out of the auditorium and the pastor sees this and says, I don't want to embarrass her, you know. So he, he said, and I don't want her to get mad at the church and stuff. So he says, hey, ma'am, you don't need to leave. You know, the baby's not bothering me. And the mom looks at the preacher and says, uh, well, the baby may not be bothering you, but you're killing him. So that's what I always think of that. So J stands for Jesus ascends to heaven. That's the essential content of chapter one. Chapter two we're going to see 1776 for Christians. What happened in 1776? Declaration of Independence. I just watched a documentary on, on, on that. And uh, Jefferson, who was the principal author, went through several drafts. College students today think with their word processor, whatever they come up with, they can do it. If it's due at 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning, they can do it at 7.58, pull it out of there, and it ought to be an A+. 
And you ought to thank them for actually showing up and turning in their information. Nobody does that, you know. It takes multiple drafts. Uh, Thomas Jefferson went through multiple drafts of the Declaration, went to the Continental Congress, and they edited it several times, right? So that's pretty interesting. Jesus ascends to heaven, establishment of the New Testament church, 1776, the beginning of the, the whole new era, Old Testament, New Testament. We'll see that in detail in chapter 2. Chapter 3, we see kind of a visual aid of how salvation works. We get a a uh, a poverty-stricken, begging, lame person who's saved by God's grace. We do nothing to contribute to our salvation. U stands for the unleashing of persecution, unleashing a persecution against the church. It starts early and it continues to this day. The 20th century saw more Christian martyrs than any century in history, but the early church really paid a price. And I think one reason Luke writes Acts is to say God is working in the midst of all this mayhem. God's purposes are working out, even though we're taking casualties. And then in chapter 5, we're going to see the first major overt sin in the church. It has to do with financial issues and people lying about financial issues, which sometimes people do, right? So, you guys know that? What does J stand for? Jesus ascends, and we're doing prolegomena here, but the essence of chapter 1 is his ascension. And I think Protestants don't emphasize the importance of the ascension and what's going on there as much as the Roman Catholic tend to do. What does E stand for? Ten days after the ascension, you've got the day of Pentecost, which begins the whole New Testament church era. S stands for what? Salvation of a lame beggar. Uh, just as I am, without one plea, come to Christ in faith, and you don't have to be rich or famous or pretty or or white or well-educated to receive salvation through faith. Uh, you is what? Unleashing of first concerted persecution against the New Testament church, and then we're going to see sin in the church. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. This is the prologue, the organized introduction that kind of gets you uh, going and kind of puts... Uh, some of the, the author's main uh, priorities kind of on the table for you. We talked about last week the doctrine of inspiration. Doc, doctrine of inspiration is how God gave us his written word. And it works like this. God the Holy Spirit superintended in a very unique, supernatural, class A miracle kind of way. God the Holy Spirit superintended the human authors of Scripture such that they, in this case Luke writing Acts, composed and recorded the exact message God wanted as timeless scripture in the words of the original manuscript. So the Holy Spirit, all the biblical books stand have two authors, dual authorship of scripture, the spirit and the human author. And yet the, the human author's will, personality, interests are not stifled. Uh, God uses the holy side of Luke's mentality, his vocabulary, his interests, his personality, his purpose for writing the book, and the Holy Spirit superintends that so you end up with Scripture. And that's what we've got there. Now let's look at the way this prologue in the book of Acts works and compares to another prologue. We've suggested that Luke and Acts are two volumes of one human author's work. The Gospel of Luke talks about the life of Christ through the ascension. The book of Acts starts with the ascension, talks about the first generation church. And we compared these last week, 
But it, it's, it's really interesting to do that, to kind of read the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke and then the first three verses of the, God, uh, the book of Acts and see how they compare. Very similar, same original human recipient, Theophilus. And we talked about that a bit last week. But let's reread the prologue to Acts. And, and let me do it with some commentary. If you're looking at your notes in uh, brackets and lighter print, I put my little comments to maybe kind of guide us through this. Uh, the first account I composed is talking about what we would call the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke that I've written, and you've already read Theophilus, Theophilus was a Roman official who was in position to help Paul at the end of the book of Acts. We know Paul's under house arrest awaiting a legal hearing uh, about all that Jesus began. The Gospel of Luke, I wrote, to tell you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What does began imply? It continues, right? He began what he wanted to do in his physical earthly ministry, but his ministry continues, right? Bobby... He began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. The ascension, you got the death of Christ for our sins. Three days later, that's validated by his literal resurrection. Forty days after that, we have the ascension. And Jesus appears multiple times, at least ten that are recorded in Scripture. Probably a hundred and ten. I don't think the passages that tell us about the appearances are intended to be comprehensive. But Jesus appears to the apostles and ministers to them during that period between his resurrection and his ascension until the day he was taken up to heaven. And by the way, uh, because I, in my notes, I made the text of the New American Standard Translation bold here to distinguish it from my uh, much more insignificant uh, uh, comments in the uh, regular type, but uh, and this kind of obscures a little bit, but until the day he was taken up to heaven. Now, the word heaven is in italics. Now, some of you guys know what that means, but when Bible translators put terms in italics, Scott, they're telling you something. And as a good Bible reader, Sean, you need to realize this. Now, there's a long joke I won't take the time to tell, but it's about the country preacher seeing the italics in, in a biblical text and pounding his fist on the pulpit and say, and saying, see that word heaven, Joe, it's in italics. And everybody knows what italics mean. You know what that means? It means it's really important. And that's what we do uh, in modern English writings. We put things in italics to emphasize them. But Bible translators don't do that. They use italics to tell you, Dale, this word heaven isn't in the Greek text we're translating, but we believe it's implied. So we're going to put it in there so you can understand the context. So... You might say, well, why are they putting words in the Bible? Why are they putting words in Luke's mouth that aren't there? Because if you read it, uh, you know, the first account, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had taken up where? Well, look, the, the reason that you'll see translators sometimes put words in the translation that aren't there in the original is because they're convinced those words are clearly implied by the context. Look at verse 11. What's chapter 1 all about? Jesus is alive as heaven's bride. Jesus ascends. That's what really chapter 1 is really all about. Look at verse 11. Talking about uh, two angels that are confirming what the apostles were seeing but find hard to believe that Jesus has just levitated straight up back to heaven. They, these two men in white that are clearly angels, 
said to the apostles and whoever else was watching this, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up, stand there looking up in the sky? You've got work to do. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, no italics there. He's just saying heaven there overtly will come literal second advent end times in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So in the broad context of a couple paragraphs, fairly short paragraphs, it's clear that we're talking, Fran, about Jesus' uh, death, resurrection, 40 days later, ascension. We're talking about him ascending to heaven. So the translator, I think rightly so, puts heaven in there. So now you know what italics mean when you look at Bible translations. Till the day he was taken up, the ascension to heaven, right? Um, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And we'll talk about some of that as we go through the book, but I think he's thinking especially the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? Make disciples of all nations. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. Not just white people, but black people. Not just men, but women. Not just free, but slaves in that culture. Everybody. God so loved the world. Rich people, poor people, good people, bad people. Nobody's so bad they can't have this. Nobody's so good they don't need it. Until after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these, to the apostles, he also presented himself alive during that 40-day period between his resurrection and ascension. And I, I love the King James version of this uh, but I'm reading the American Standard. He presented himself alive after his suffering, after his death on the cross. What does SAS stand for? Substitutionary atoning sacrifice validated by his literal bodily supernatural resurrection by many, many, many convincing proofs. And like I, 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 I like to say many times, we don't believe in the resurrection because somebody shortly after Easter Sunday thought maybe they saw on a foggy night somebody who might have looked like Jesus, maybe. And so, boom, we're all supposed to believe in it. Uh, as my little chart I've got there that I actually borrowed from the Internet, so it wasn't mine, uh, will show you. There are at least ten uh, resurrection appearances between the resurrection event itself and the ascension that are recorded in Scripture. And Luke talks about many convincing proofs. And I remember Michael and I were talking about this Wednesday night, but the, the Scripture does not attempt to tell you everything it could about everything it's talking about. Uh, I think the Gospel of John makes that very clear, where at his kind of uh, genre statement, his summary of why he's writing, he says, many other signs Jesus also performed uh, that are not recorded in this book, but these, the ones I'm recording, are here for a purpose. They're sufficient for what you need to know. So, I, you know, if we go to heaven and Steve, who always checks up all, all my statistics, walks up, you know, to Luke and uh, Paul and, and whoever else is relevant and say, hey, you know, when you look at the New Testament, there are 10 specific references to Jesus appearing to people during that 40 day period. Was that all? And I go, yeah, that was all. Well, Brad thought it was more. You know, uh, I got a sneaking suspicion he probably does more than is recorded, but we've got at least 10 here. So many convincing proofs. Watch this. Uh, one way to explain away the resurrection uh, is called the hallucination theory. There, there are several different views, but one's the hallucination, hallucination theory. But the hallucination theory doesn't explain the resurrection based on what we know about hallucinations. Okay? Uh, I had a hallucination last Sunday 
that there was a team on the one-yard line of the Super Bowl, and it's second down, and they can either go up the middle once or better bootleg to that guy, and the quarterback who's so fast can surely get to the corner of the end zone. You know, but like I told my wife, my first wife, who was watching a game with me, I said, even after that amazing circus catch, and I don't believe in luck, but that was the luckiest catch I've ever seen in my life, you know. I just set this thing up. I said, this is not over yet. You know, I thought maybe he hit the line and fumbled or something. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I had a hallucination that some guy who makes like $8 million a year, to co- and I would do it for half of that uh, to, to coach the, this football team, made a really, I think, a bad play call. Now, of course, I think he's thinking they're never going to expect it, and he has an explanation that I don't really understand. Of course, Tiger said the reason he didn't play good this week was because he couldn't activate his glutes, and that was another explanation I didn't get. But, uh, yeah, uh, hallucinations happen to certain individuals under certain circumstances, and if you, let's say, don't sleep for three or four days, you will hallucinate. You'll see things that aren't there. I don't care how spiritual you are. You don't get enough sleep. Uh, you'll you'll see all kinds of stuff that's not really there, right? But you don't have groups of people having the same hallucination at the same in the same real time environment. So the point is, we don't just have one person who thought they might have seen Jesus once. We've got many convincing proofs, multiple appearances to different audiences, one time to at least five hundred people at once. Uh, personal interaction where he's talking with them. He's eat Jesus. The resurrected Jesus is eating food, not because he's hungry, but just to prove he's really there. However, as a theologian, I'm telling you, based on my theological extraction, in your resurrection body, you can eat all you want to and not gain any weight. So that's just, that's, that's just, I'm, you'll find out if we're right on that too. And I think I'm right on that too. There are 110 appearances, only 10 recorded, and you can eat all you want to. And so for me, uh, you know, maybe I like, food when I get to heaven. I hope so. But uh, yeah, many convincing proofs, um, not just one appearance of somebody you're not sure you can trust, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. What's this 40 days thing? From the resurrection Easter, Sunday morning, April, uh, what's that? April 5th, 33 AD to 40 days out, you got that period, this very interesting, amazing period where the resurrected Christ before his ascension is interacting with his folks. And, of course, he's speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Uh, you don't usually see a chart like this, and, and I didn't. I was too lazy to make one up myself. I just found this, and I did Google search for the visuals, and boom, found this thing. But, yeah, I mean, uh, when you, watch this. When you've got uh, four Gospels that talk about resurrection appearances in the book of Acts that talks about resurrection appearances, realize you've got a timeline with certain events in a sequence, but each one of the gospel writers, Ray, are not telling you the whole sequence. They're talking about something that happened in the second quarter and the third quarter, but the other guy's talking about something that happened in the first quarter and the fourth quarter, and if you try to put them together and assume they're all saying the same thing, they don't line up, but when you stretch out a timeline and realize, yeah, you can actually put this on a timeline and it all works out. So uh, some of the opponents of Christianity will say, well, golly, what Luke's saying at the end of chapter 24, what Matthew's saying 28 don't line up. Yeah, they do. They're not talking about the same thing. They're talking about different events on a continuum. And it's not that difficult to kind of lay that out in a reasonable way that clearly is is, is what's being affirmed there. But the point is, uh, he's going to start with with the ascension and then go on with the first century church. Let's think of it this way. The Gospel of Luke is like an inverted spiral that goes to Jerusalem. 
where the death, resurrection, and ascension take place. The book of Acts starts at the ascension and is an outward spiral and it ends up where in chapter 28? What city are we in? We're in Rome. The power base of the whole you know, uh, economic political system of the Mediterranean basin. So we start in the Old Testament era and we end up in Jerusalem where the temple is, God's city. Then we start there and we go out to Rome. So it's really a comprehensive kind of a briefing for every generation of church men and women. Gospel of Luke, what Jesus did while he was with the disciples. Book of Acts, what Jesus continued to do in and through the disciples. And following that, every generation. Okay, So, verses 1 through 3 is Luke telling you, I've got this thing organized. I'm going to start with the ascension, and I'm going to tell you what you need to know about what Jesus did in the first generation to get the church going. And even though sometimes it was a stinky, smelly mess and bad things were happening to individuals, and some people were even killed for this thing, God's got a purpose. He's got a plan. Plug in, and let's score some points, you know, as long as we have the ball. Now, verses 4 and 5 is telling us this very counterintuitive idea that sometimes doing nothing, and you're never really doing nothing, nothing, is exactly what God wants you to be doing. God's will for the Christian's life involves waiting, holding periods. You know, one reason that you can fly and be on schedule and still not land on time is because they'll put you in a holding pattern. What's a holding pattern in an airplane? There are other planes that need to take off and land, and you just get in line, right? And you wait for your turn. And, you know, I'm old enough now, I can think of holding patterns like, you know, uh, I always say I got married under false pretenses because I married that beautiful young lady back there, and she was a dental hygienist, and I was a pre-dental student, biology student. And so she thought she was marrying a dentist. And worse than that, her parents thought their daughter was marrying a dentist. And I got to dental school, and I got about halfway through, uh, and I had to drop out because of an eye problem and a heart problem. God changed my heart, and I found out that I only looked through one eye, and I've got very bad vision up close. So it was taking me like three hours to do a class one amalgam. And the first time you do it, Aaron probably took three hours for the first one. Now we can do one in about 27 seconds, you know? And I wasn't getting any faster. But, uh, yeah, and here's the thing. Uh, I spent almost two years in dental school, Within about 12 weeks, I knew I was a square peg being forced into a round hole. So, guess what? God spoke to me, not verbally. not He didn't sit down and say, hey boy, you're in the wrong place. I could just tell from other things in my life he wanted me to do something. I was convinced he wanted me to go to Dallas Seminary, learn Greek and Hebrew so I could teach people like you what the Bible really means, okay? But here's the problem. God hadn't talked to Debbie about it yet. And, you know, bless her heart, I can see it, you know. How can you connect the dots? It's, it's not easy to get to dental school. Once you're there, if you survive, you know, it's the pot of gold. It's so much fun, isn't it? There's no problems, no stresses being a dentist. You can ask Carla, her, her son's a dentist. Actually, it's not uh, the gravy train is made out to be, although uh, it's a... And I tell you what, one thing about going to dental school, I will never take dentists for granted. Uh, Christopher Corbin's a dentist. I, when I... When these, these kids I've seen grow up actually go to dental school, stay in dental school, and graduate from dental school. It makes me so happy to see that. I, I realize people can actually do that because I couldn't do that. But I, I'm telling you what, you can't believe what dentists do. You've got this tiny little operating theater. It's called teeth. You get 32 of them. 
And you don't have to floss all of them, just the ones you want to keep. You've got to floss those. But I mean, they do all these things to teeth. You can't believe it, man. It's amazing what they do. But anyway, talking about holding patterns, I knew pretty quickly in dental school, this is not what I wanted to do. This is not what I really, I could do probably very effectively. Uh, and I, I was really convinced God wanted me to drop out of dental school and go to Dallas Seminary. Although I knew my father would take me out of the will and probably kind of have me whacked. He was talking about Debbie and her parents. Uh, my dad was the real problem. But um, long story short, uh, I brought it up and whined and complained to Debbie about dental school and didn't want to do it anymore. And she just couldn't connect those dots. I mean, it just didn't make sense. And generally, you know, Dobson wrote a book, When God Doesn't Make Sense, and because we don't have all the data, a lot of times it doesn't look like he's making sense. But it made no sense at all for her to pay my last two years of college, pay my dental school. And by the way, here's what you don't know. My, I'm not making this up. My cousin Homer Nunn, who was my best man at my wedding, he won a lottery in Jamaica, $100,000, which is probably worth a million dollars now, and about six months before I started dental school. And so once I actually got into dental school, I realized we can't afford this, but Homer had just won the lottery. I'm not making it up. So I, can't, I, I remember calling him and saying, hey, Homer, you know, I got in dental school. Yeah, your dad told me. Yeah, he's great. Uh, I'm going to need some money. Could I borrow X? And he went, yeah, you know, I'm going to loan it to you. I'll get it back with interest. So once I actually did drop out, when my dad, about four months later, started talking to me again, his first question was, how are you going to pay Homer? <laughs> you know. But anyway, my point is, I got the Spirit told me to do this. I, mean, I know, I'm not thinking I got off the... But my point is, sometimes you're in holding patterns. I was absolutely convinced that God wanted me to leave dental school and apply to Dallas Seminary, but even though I was dumber and and wackier than I am even now, I realized if I was going to go to Dallas Seminary and learn how to teach the Bible and be a pastor, probably in a small town somewhere, uh, I didn't think we'd end up in anything as big as Duncan, you know, but uh, <laughs> uh, that me dragging my wife reluctantly, kicking and screaming to Dallas and into a pastorate is probably not an effective way. So I just, I was smart enough to realize if God really wants me to do this, and I'm convinced he does, he's going to have to convince her because I can't. And it took over a year for him to convince her. But when it happened, it was like supernatural. It was like Paul getting saved. It wasn't salvation, but it was like the next best thing. And I, I, won't, I don't have time to go into all the detail. But trust me, when the movie comes out and they've signed you know, Tom Hanks to play me, can he, you think he can do it? Um, then you'll see all the details. But yeah, I'm 61 and I look back and I can think of periods where you don't feel like you're doing all that much. But then when you get enough context, you can see that prepared you for something else or you met this person and that happened here or this happened and then your son will tell you later how important that was to him and you thought, I didn't think that was any big deal. <laughs> you know, I thought that was just kind of, mm, go do it or can't do it or whatever. So a lot of times there's a certain amount of waiting from our perspective, kind of living in a holding pattern. Uh, sometimes uh, senioritis, you know what senioritis is? It's high school seniors realizing maybe their first major holding pattern in life, being kind of frustrated and not wanting to you know, put in the effort they normally would in their school and this and that. But I mean, I would just say, get used to the idea this kind of thing happens all the time. And I, you know, I think men are especially bad about this, but I'm sure women can do it too. For most of us men, when we're pretty sure we know what God's will is for us or our family, we just assume the 
the when and the how is right now by whatever means necessary. And I'm telling you, as a 61-year-old guy who's learned a few things about life over the years, that God's will is not just a what, it's a how and a when. And for me, looking back now, I realize that uh, God did some things during that holding pattern period in Houston when I was in dental school that I needed for the rest of my life. And so he knew the timing of us making that change was significant. And praise God, I, I, I was smart enough to kind of wait for that. A lot of times I don't. So God's will for the Christian's life, if you're a believer, put your name in the blank here. God's will for Steve Skinner's life is not just a what, it's also a when and a how. And sometimes that when is not now. And you just got to deal with it. Okay. Now, look at verses 4 and 5. It says, gathering them, Jesus gathering them, the 11 apostles together, he commanded, in the context we just described, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, not to drop out of dental school, not to leave Duncan and take that promotion or demotion, not to uh, stop homeschooling, not, you know, just stay what you're doing you know, for a while. Not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me too, John the Baptist baptized with water, but you, that's plural, all y'all will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's speaking, you know, just a few days before uh, the, uh, in, in fact, the Holy Spirit will come, as we'll see in chapter 2, 10 days after the actual ascension of Christ. Now, a couple of things here I think people tend to miss. Gathering them, the 11 together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means don't leave Jerusalem. But watch this. Uh, the whole Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke is structured from chapter 9 through chapter 19 to describe in excruciating detail the last trip to Jerusalem for Passover. And during that whole period, which is described in great detail, Jesus is trying to prepare them for the cross. And listen, the, the apostles don't want to get anywhere near Jerusalem. Why not? Because that's where the bad guys are. Okay, Jesus is saying, we're going there. We're going for a purpose. He sets his face to go. And for 10 plus chapters, they're whining, complaining. They don't want to go. They don't want to get anywhere near Jerusalem because it's dangerous. They know that for Jesus and for them. And then once they finally, it clicks in, he's going. And I guess we'll go along. Then they come up with the bright idea. You know what that must mean? You know what it must mean? If Jesus is taking us to Jerusalem, even though it's so dangerous, he's going to take over. We're going to take over. We're going to take over the government. Yeah. And then they start arguing about which one of them should be the highest rank. Uh, when and Jesus took over the government. So, you know, when you look at the book, Gospel of Luke, and I think Luke kind of assumes you've read Luke before you read Acts. Uh, the, waiting in Jerusalem, that's where they crucified Jesus just a few days before. This is the place they didn't want to get, get anywhere near. If this hadn't have happened, if the resurrection hadn't happened, as soon as they were the Lord was crucified, and after they kind of got themselves together for a couple of days, they would have gone in 18 different directions. They would have got as far away from Jerusalem as possible. To hear they're supposed to wait longer now is not something they would have dreamed up. It's not something they would have wanted to do, but it was what God wanted them to do. If uh, an angel had said, hey, you're right, Brad. God wants you to go to Dallas Seminary and uh, end up being a Bible teaching pastor somewhere, uh, but you can't go now. You have to wait a year, I would have went, oh, really? Yeah, but it's okay. It'll all work out. There'll be reasons. You know, that's kind of what's happening there. He's just letting them know. Now, by the way, before we look at a little bit more of that, no extra charge for this, but notice he says, uh, wait in Jerusalem for what God the Father had promised, what I had told you about, 
you guys are going to be baptized in and by the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the Trinity. Um, where do you find a good verse? N number one, where does the Bible use the word Trinity? The term is never used. It's, it's a term that's been coined to describe what the Bible teaches about the fact there's how many gods who exist in three persons, and we don't totally understand it. I think that's a nice attempt at two dimensions to present it. But let me go beyond that. Okay, the Trinity, the term's not used. But the word Bible's not found in the Bible. You know, you realize that? I mean, these, but this is a legitimate theological term. But uh, if I were to ask you, what's the best, Donna? You're talking to a Jehovah's Witness who doesn't believe in the Trinity, and they say, give me one passage that talks about the Trinity. What would you say? What would you say? Call Pastor Brad. You know, yeah, I know a couple. Well, I think a lot of people tend to think uh, of Matthew, uh, uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, 20, baptizing them in the name. How many names do they play? Of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's three. One of three. I think that's a good place to start. I think that communicates well. I like the baptism of Christ. You know, where you're baptizing the incarnation of the Son of God. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the voice of God the Father. I think that's a good place where you see the three different persons. There are a couple other places I like. Uh, Jesus preaching in Nazareth in Luke 4 from the synagogue, quoting Isaiah 61, and he says, uh, uh, the, the, the Lord God has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he's anointed me with a spirit, you know, to bring peace to the, to the nation of Israel. That's a bad paraphrase, but you've got Jesus, the Son of God, referring to the Lord, God the Father, and the Spirit. That's kind of a nice uh, passage. But here's one that nobody ever cites. Gathering the apostles together, he said, you guys stay in Jerusalem, stay in dental school. It's not, it's not my long-term purpose for you, but stay for right now uh, and wait for what the Father, God the Father had promised, which you heard from me, the Son of God, and you're going to be baptized, placed into the New Testament church by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of a nice passage, I think, to do that. Now, the big crux of this is, what's he talking about? Wait in Jerusalem, uh, so you'll be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. Uh, John, the guy that is prominent in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist, we call him, even though he's a Jewish guy, all right, uh, baptized with water. But you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's talk about the term baptism, the baptism of John, baptism of the Holy Spirit. The term baptism in the original language, baptizo, just means to immerse. It was used to kind of put for referring to putting things, usually cloth, in the dye, immerse it in a vat of dye so it would be identifiable and the color would be changed uh, uh, to make it identifiable. So it came to mean just to be placed into something. So that's what the basic term means itself. Um, baptism of John, what do you know about that? John really is the last Old Testament prophet. He's saying the Messiah is on the ground in real time. And nation, I want you to change your mind about salvation by being a Pharisee, acknowledge your sins, and we'll tell you as he makes himself known who exactly this person is. That's what's going on there. Uh, look at Mark chapter 1. It's in Luke 2, but I think from my purpose right now, I want you to look at the Mark 1, 4 reference to John's baptism. Okay. And I know Jenny and Stan are experts on this passage. But uh, Mark 1.4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism in water, we know that, uh, in the Jordan River. 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there are some groups today that teach you've got to be baptized by them in their tank this week to be saved, to have your sins forgiven, and they'll go to a passage like this, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Obviously, baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you actually connect grammatically what's going on here, we're talking about an external symbol, like my wedding ring. Uh, that's kind of a expression, a testimony of repentance, which is changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and your Savior. It's synonymous with saving faith. And it's the repentance, it's the faith that's connected with forgiveness of sins. It's not the baptism. Those who repent, trust in Christ, are forgiven, and then, as part of that complex, they ought to publicly confess to that, and that's where the baptism comes. You might well say, well, you know, that's nice, Brad, if you know how to diagram sentences, but I'm just a guy who doesn't diagram sentences. I'm a plumber, I'm an engineer or something. Uh, I could never get that from the Bible. Yeah, you could. Go to another parallel passage. Go to Acts 19. And this is pretty neat because you've got the Apostle Paul uh, talking about John's baptism because you, he's bumping into some people well into the New Testament era who don't know the specifics about Christ. They're just kind of generic Old Testament believers living uh, in the New Testament era. Very unique situation. But right now, look at 19 verse 4. Paul's going back to the beginning and says, hey, and these people he's talking to know all about John and they believe John uh, was a prophet and preparing them to receive the Messiah, but they just don't know who that is yet. Haven't heard about it yet. So Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to do what? When you say metanaeo, repentance, you're saying pistuo. You can't, I can't say, Chris, don't stay over there, come over here. If Chris comes over here, he's not staying over there. I can say, don't stay over there, come over here. I can just say, come over here. Or I can just say, don't stay over there. They all mean the same thing. Repentance, changing your mind about your sin, you got it. Yourself, you can't fix it. The Savior is the only one who can. It's the same thing as active receptive trust. But you'll notice Paul saying, it wasn't the guy's water baptism that did anything per se beyond just like a wedding ring gives you a chance to confess an inner reality. Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Those who repented, those who had trusted in his message about becoming Messiah, that is those who believed in him in the Messiah. So uh, that's John's baptism, right? I was talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The key passage on that, and for lack of time, just trust me, we'll look it up later. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 uh, talks about this dynamic of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the set of all born-again believers since Pentecost. And it transcends denominations. It transcends cultures, colors and countries, right? And the dynamic that puts new believers into the body of Christ is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The basic meaning of baptism is to place into something. And at the moment of saving faith, According to Dr. Cheer, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Seminary, like 37 different things happened. Tommy uh, sang about one. As far as the east is from the west, as far as your position is concerned, you know, all the sins Jesus died for are wiped out. You've got a status like that. One of the other 37 things is you're placed into the New Testament body of Christ. How does that happen? By a function, a non-experiential function of the Holy Spirit called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being placed into the body of Christ uh, by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. TBF doesn't have any formal membership, Sean. You don't have to sign a paper or make it make us any promises. We have no formal membership. We have what? A functional membership? So some people are always, always wanting to belong to something. Well, i got good news for you. If you're a believer, 
You belong to something. You belong to the New Testament body of Christ, which is the only church that really means anything anyway, really, ultimately. So that's that. Okay, let's finish this one. <laughs> Can't wait to find out how much I blabbered about dental school. It sounded like it took about 27 minutes. I hope it wasn't that long. I don't talk about it much because it's still very painful, but I'm, I, I could tell you. Yeah, when I, and get this, uh, God changed my wife's attitude one weekend when she was out of town with her mother doing Easter, and I stayed home so I could do dental work all day Saturday and then go teach my Sunday school class Sunday morning and then drive across Houston again and go church Sunday night. We went on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I'm working 97 hours a week at dental school. But uh, it was a different era back then. But, uh, yeah, so when my wife came back and said, yeah, let's go, she totally changed. I, a week before that, had had one of my clinical instructors, and we had a little cubicle, so they didn't actually, this is scary, they didn't actually watch us do dental work on people. They put us in cubicles all by ourselves with our patients, and when we got to certain checkpoints, then we had to find a professor who's drinking coffee somewhere to come and check off what we had done in the person's mouth. So we could have been putting drills in their neck or anything they wouldn't have known about. But I didn't do that. But uh, the week before God turned the lights on for Debbie, one of my professors walked by when I'm trying to do something. Hopefully I wasn't pulling a tooth. It was something bizarre I was doing with his patient. And because my depth perception is so messed up, but you just do what you do in your life. I basically stuck my face down her throat trying to pull this tooth out. And he kind of said, McCoy, stop that. And he kind of backed me off and said, what are you doing? And he kind of pulled me aside and said, well, you know, it's the second molar. I can't see it. He said, you can't get that close to the patient's mouth. Said, this is before AIDS, by the way. Uh, uh, he said, have you had your eyes checked recently? And I said, hey, I've been wearing glasses since I was 18 months old. I had to get them checked every year by an optometrist. There's nothing wrong with optometrists if you need lenses. And you got a complicated visual problem, go to an ophthalmologist, MD. So he hooked me up with an MD in the University of Texas dental system. It's free for me. I, I went to her the Friday before the weekend. Debbie changed her mind. God changed her mind for it. the only real workup in my eyes I'd ever had. So boom, she comes home on Sunday. Let's go. When can you get out? The next Monday, the next day, I go to get my results. And the ophthalmologist literally said, I wish you were in law school, not dental school, because your two dimensions are fine. You can read but you're going to kill somebody as a dentist. I mean, she basically said, you better get out or I'm going to report you. So I said, I don't need that. I'm not going to law school. I'm going to seminary. So boom, that was it. So now I've got my wife's okay. I've got God's okay. I got my wife's okay, which is almost as important. I've got an ophthalmologist telling me I can't continue. And so I call my dad and call home because the next day I'm going to, it took me two days to get out of dental school. It's easier to get out of the army than it is to get out of dental school. And uh, I, I called home. This is before cell phones. You know, you got to just plug it to the wall. My mother answers it, and I said, I need to talk to Dad. And she could tell. Either Debbie was dead or I was quitting dental school. It's one of those things. I think she knew. And she said, what's this about? I said, well, I'm going to uh, go to Dr. So-and-so and withdraw from dental school tomorrow, so I'm going to go to seminary. Uh, and she said, he won't talk to you. And I literally thought he would never talk to me again. He wasn't a believer at that point. He's not a believer. So, um, wow, craziness. But uh, here's the principle. Let me end here. Sometimes doing nothing, and I mean waiting prayerfully while doing nothing that seems significant to you can be exactly the right thing. Uh, I'm not saying rationalizing, not helping people you should help and giving things you should give. I'm talking about Self-imposed situ- imposed upon you situation. 
But sometimes in a fallen world, there's nothing you can do about certain situations but pray. And praying is doing something significant. Don't, don't doubt me there. But these holding patterns, and I've got a lot of good examples. I'm going to end with just one, and I'm done, honest. Uh, one specific one. But if you read the Joseph story, you know, Genesis 37 through 50, you know, when, when he is accused of trying to sexually assault Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison, and then he interprets the dreams, you know, and these guys should help him out, they forget about him. And just when you look at chapter 42, 1, it says, and so jo- Joseph remained there for two whole years doing nothing, doing nothing. But God's working out everybody else's schedule so they all line up so that when some, something significant happens, it all fits. And you can see a lot of examples of that. But let me just pick one of them. And I was, I was thinking, uh, you know, great moms. And this room is full of great moms. I know Nancy is a great mom. Ray's a great mom. My wife, obviously, is a great mom. Uh, a lot of great moms. I mean, the, the three musketeers here, you know, the, uh, you know, the Carolyns and Wanda, great moms, great grandmothers. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on one of my favorite great moms. I'm gonna pick on Debbie Corbin, okay? Watch this. She can look at her sons today, and I know she's gonna say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> For these three kids and how great they turned out and uh, and their their wives and their families and it's such a blessing to so many. Thank you, Lord. That would be her her basic reaction. And I know her well enough that in her kind of righteous humility, she'd think, "Wow, you know, I didn't really do anything all that special. I didn't do anything any other mother wouldn't do." And that's not true. I mean, she said, "I did nothing significant that that often. I mean, I cooked, and I cleaned, and I bathed, and I." prayed for them, and I prayed with them, and I sent them to school, and I sent them to church. Uh, but I did nothing all that amazing. Look how good it all turned out. Sometimes doing nothing, but just being routinely faithful in little things and getting no fanfare is exactly where God wants you to be so that at certain crunch points in life, certain things happen. That wouldn't have happened if you hadn't quietly, consistently done the right thing. Right? Uh, the fact is, Debbie's Nothing special turns out to be hundreds and thousands of hours of seemingly non-spectacular routine things that are added up in the providence of God to produce these young men, these amazing young men, Sean, Brent, and, and Chris, and their families, right? If you ask Sean today, what was the favorite meal your mother cooked for you in your entire life? He'd probably say, you know... I, I mean, maybe he's, maybe he could think of one. He's probably more thoughtful than I am. If my mom asked me, I said, you know, I can't honestly think of one that stands out, but I appreciate you feeding me for the first 20 years of my life. You know, I needed it, you know, kind of thing. So the point is, and I'll end with this. Don't you hate it when they say they're going to end, they keep going? Don't misunderstand. Don't underestimate what routine faithfulness over time can do in the providence of God. He's talking about waiting for 10 days, short period of time, but listen, they're in the city where they crucified Jesus. If they can crucify Jesus, they can sure crucify Peter, James, and John, humanly speaking, right? So it's every day, every minute's dangerous. Don't underestimate what routine faithfulness, even without any fanfare, can do. It probably won't make you rich or famous, but it can be and will be used by God to significantly change the world, your world, according to His purposes, okay? Father, help us to be encouraged that sometimes when we feel like we're in a holding pattern, we can be exactly where you want us to be. 
And even if we don't see why we're going through the routine that seems num numbing and, and not significant, uh, could be important. So many times when we get a little context, we look back and realize you were doing some great things there for us and for your kingdom and for other people. And so just help us to kind of flip the trust switch in our souls, not to be so quick to second guess and to uh, simmer with kind of a lack of contentment. Let us be just committed to be routinely faithful, do what we can, and realize sometimes doing nothing significant is just where you have us right now. And we prayerfully wait for the next big thing, realizing that a lot of little things over time do add up and can add up in your mathematics to really great things. Father, I pray for uh, this group in this auditorium that uh, for those who are believers, help us to see practical reality about your purpose and person that will help us live out a good Christian life this week. For anyone here this morning who's not in the depth of their heart recognize their need for a Savior because we all break your standards, much less, I mean, our own standards, much less yours on a regular basis. All of us have sinned to come short of the glory of God. But God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because Jesus died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. So if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and for the reception of your blessed gift of eternal life, open their eyes to see and to believe. Draw them to yourself. Convict them of their need, the sufficiency of Christ, and allow them to receive the wonderful gift of eternal life. We pray that uh, the rest of us who are believers would see in the book of Acts a lot of practical and pivotal information we need to know and live out. Help us to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.